everyone. Welcome to our first ever episode of Closely Related. Yes, we are so pumped to be doing this podcast and really excited that you are listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, no, I feel I feel honored that you're spending your 50 minutes with us. Um, seriously, I'm, seriously. <laughs> I'm Hannah Strom. And I'm Samantha Strom. And if you could not tell from the last names, we are related and we are, in fact, identical twins. Yes. And if you can't tell our voices apart, that's totally fine. You're on the same page as about 80% of our extended family. Yeah, you're in good company. Most people just call us like Sam Hannah or you there. Hananda. Yeah. So we're basically a two-headed monster who are, you know, same voice, same intonation, similar jokes. And as you'll soon hear, very similar careers as well. Yes. I, Hannah, am a therapist, and I specialize in sex and relationships. And I see individuals and couples. I also see people for things like general anxiety, depression, being an adult in this crazy world. Yes. And I am a career and leadership coach, so I also help people figure out being an adult in this crazy world. And I have a lot of clients who are in the quarter-life crisis phase, so in their 20s or 30s, trying to figure out, oh, what am I doing with my career or my life? And or who are leading and are trying to figure out how to manage a team or maybe how to manage up with their toxic boss or just navigate the fun fun times that is work these days. And I also do consulting as well. So I help do that basically on a larger scale to make sure that work is a place that's enjoyable to go to versus a place you literally cannot wait for it to be 5 p.m. Yeah, so we have super similar jobs that are like all about helping people and talking about deep, dark feelings. So we thought we'd take that love of getting into our trauma and our emotions and put it in podcast form. Taking that show and put it on the road, blasting it into space, basically. (laughs) Yeah, so we are giving people advice from letters they write in from things from the personal to the professional. So topics like ghosting to why doesn't he like me back to should I quit my job and sail across the country? Mm, Yes, sail that boat across the U.S. It's going to go great. That is our advice. I really know a lot about sailing, everybody, <laughs> and geography. Anyways, we do have some actual advice we hope is solid about your life and your feelings and work. So we are open to all of those topics. And please write in. So this is this is a show for you to write in. So please do so. We love to hear from you. And we just, we love talking about this stuff. So that is why we have created a platform where we can do it even more. Yes. And if you do want to write in, the email is closelyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Please include your pronouns so we know how to refer to you. Yes. Yes. And so to start us off, we've gotten some initial letters and we picked two, one that represented 
work a bit more and one that represented relationships a bit more. So it's kind of a smattering of what you can expect on the rest of the podcast. And we're super excited and grateful to everyone who's written in so far. You all are amazing. Yeah. Before we get started, quick disclaimer that this advice podcast doesn't constitute therapy or coaching. So if you do need a therapist or a coach, please reach out to somebody in your area. Yes, definitely. All right. So let's get started. Let's do it. Here's letter writer number one. I think that my deepest struggle is feeling adequate enough to start dating seriously and seeking a relationship that could lead to marriage. As a man, I feel like the primary measure of my worth is in what I can provide to a significant other. This leads me feeling like I should try to develop a stable career and strong financial foundation, which I've been striving to do for most of my life. However, due to the plight of millennials and my own proclivities, this has been taking so much longer than I ever wanted. And I'm worried that it may be at least another two years until I feel adequate enough to take the plunge. As a result, I find myself desiring a serious relationship with all my heart, but then my brain constantly points out all of the risks and unknowns that I would have to ask a girl to sign up for. This makes it very difficult for me to give any relationship a real shot. I already have to make really difficult decisions about time management, even during non-COVID times, so prioritizing a relationship will be a serious commitment for me. This also makes me very picky, and I probably overlook some incredible women. I know that I'm probably overthinking this, but is there some truth in how I'm thinking about this? Should I focus more on the good things that I bring to the table to give me confidence? Should I put myself out there regardless and see what happens, even if I cannot help but worry that it may not be the best use of my time? So first, I just want to say to the letter writer, I really, I feel where you're coming from because I'm single right now and I've been dating and dating is really scary. It's really scary to think of getting rejected, maybe not being enough for whatever reason, and feeling like you want to be maybe the best version of yourself before you start dating so that you have a really healthy relationship or that the right person's going to be attracted to you. But we're, you know, we're going to go into a whole thing on this podcast about our responses to this. But if you're only going to listen for 10 seconds, I'll just say the short version is definitely go for it. Definitely start dating. Don't wait until you feel like you have all of your ducks in a row because life isn't like that and nobody has all their ducks in a row and you're definitely enough right now. You don't have to have this perfect career or have this right amount of money to be a great partner for somebody. And, you know, join some dating apps and I'm sure that there's going to be lots of people out there who are super excited to go on dates with you. Yeah, I think similarly, I don't always talk to people about their romantic relationships sometimes, but a lot of times it's about their career and their life. And people have some version of this going on in their heads a lot of the time. And it sounds something like this of, I want this, but I'm not perfect yet. So let me wait until I'm perfect. And it's it's not let me wait. It's let me wait to even get started and take the first step, right? So it's not about should I get married and buy this house and move in with someone, even though I've been dating for a couple months. It's 
are they even, do they even have a dating app downloaded, right? Have they gone on a date in a while? Or is it literally, I can't even start until I'm perfect. And I think whenever that comes up, I sometimes think about or talk people through what what's happening with your thoughts, right? Because you have this goal in your heart that this letter writer says, or in your gut of, I want to do this, but X, Y, Z, right? And then people can get really, really caught in the X, Y, Z and really analyze it and overanalyze it and think about it. And is it true? Is it not true? And da, da, da. And, and we can go into all of his qualms and thoughts for sure. But I think, I think overall, something that's helpful to think about is you have this gut reaction or this instinct or this thing that you want. And then all these thoughts come up. What are all those thoughts? And they're actually protections, right? They're actually ways to keep yourself safe. So Tara Moore is one of my favorite authors ever. She wrote the book Playing Big and everyone should go read it. And she she talked about this, of how these thoughts are basically protection mechanisms to say, well, if you do this, you might fail. If you do this, you might get rejected. If you do, if you go on a date, someone might say you don't have enough money and not want to date you anymore. And that would really hurt and feel really bad. So to avoid that pain, let's just not go on a date ever until I'm perfect. Right. Or, you know, for, it could be about work. You know, I've heard people say, I want to get an MBA, but do I have enough experience? Let me just wait. Or I want to start my own business, but I don't know enough. So let me just wait. And you end up potentially never doing it or wasting a lot of time, especially when you could at least get started. I mean, you don't have to jump, jump full, full on and, you know, without thinking about any risk, that's normal, but can you take a couple steps to get started? Okay. I think Sam did a really good job of summarizing that and letting go of some of the perfectionism and let me wait until I'm perfect. But to dig into the XYZ a bit, the first thing the letter writer starts with is saying that he wishes that his career was really stable because he feels like his biggest worth in dating as a man is being a provider. I just want to say that does not define your worth as a man, as a person, as a partner. We all have messages that we got about our gender growing up, right? Like you have to be this certain kind of way if you're a man, this certain kind of way if you're a woman. And those can be incredibly influential, but it doesn't mean they're true. Like that is a construct and it it doesn't actually match up with reality. Like Lots and lots of people meet and then date and fall in love and have great lives when they're not in good financial positions, no matter what their gender. Like I'm thinking about one of my best friends met her husband when she was in high school. And obviously she's really lucky, but like he was 15. He didn't have a good financial career. He was a baby. Like lots of people meet when they're, you know, waitressing or in grad school or, you know, in between careers. There's there's tons of times that people meet where they're not making a lot of money or they're not sure about the future. Like you don't have to have this super solid, you know, white collar career to be a good partner for somebody. Yeah, I mean, I think on that too, I think it, I remember growing up and you'd play like 
I don't even know what we did, you know, play mash or something or sit around with our friends and say, oh, who do you want to be with and why? And you'd say something like, they're nice and they're funny or I want to date a lawyer. I want to do this. Right. And and you, I feel like I kind of had this laundry list of, oh, this person's good because of their resume. And I think that was even more true in, say, college when or right after college of, oh, this this is this person's career and this is the school they went to and this is where they live. And then I realized now that I've lived with someone for seven years is that literally none of that matters, right? Because what do you do with this person when you're actually together? You sit around together and you watch Netflix and you make some food and clean your apartment and then you, you know, hang out with each other and friends. And so it's so much more about what are your conversations like? Do you respect each other? What are your values? What do you like to do together and in your life? That's what it comes down to. So it really doesn't matter, you know, all all the resume stuff. Just It just doesn't matter. And that's coming from a career coach who thinks about resumes all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And I think there are some people out there who are going to put a resume like ask on their dating profile. So there's a lot of, you know, this sounds like this guy is is interested in women. So there's a lot of women dating profiles that will have things like, I want you to have your own career. I want you to have a house. I want you to own your own car. Like there are women out there who are saying things like that, but I don't really think those are the women you want to date. Like, Mm. I think that when people put out really shallow things like that, it's kind of showing what their values are as a person. And wanting financial stability isn't necessarily a shallow value. Like, there's definitely some practicality to that. But I think financial stability isn't just defined by your car and your house and even your career right now. Like, it's are you living within your means? Are you being responsible? Like those things are more important than these check marks of, of the white picket fence dream that we have. And, you know, I think if the past generation has told us anything, it's that that white picket fence dream of heterosexual relationship, man being a provider, having the house, having the dog, having two kids, it doesn't always work. You know, our generation is taking longer to get married because we're trying to have partnerships that are based on a more substantial connection. And it seems like when that happens, relationships go a bit better. So I know it's hard, but try to let go of what society tells you is important. And like, if you don't have the perfect career right now, if you don't own your own house, like that is fine. We are all millennials and No one is probably where they want to be financially. And I think the right person for you is going to understand that. Okay. So the next point in your letter is that you talk about how you don't have a lot of time and you're worried that dating would take a lot of time and it might just be a waste. So I think dating can take up a lot of time. And unfortunately, you're probably going to go on a lot of bad dates. Statistically, it's really hard to find a good match really soon. I know like a couple people that that's happened to. I have one friend who 
joined a dating site and she met her husband on the third date she ever went on and she's really happy and I love her but also haha fuck you because <laughs> that is so unfair and unlikely so like you will probably go on dozens of first dates and yeah you might waste quote unquote an evening doing that but you say that having a long-term relationship that leads to marriage is your deepest desire. So if that's your deepest desire, I think it's worth putting in some effort and just know that it's normal to feel like you're quote-unquote wasting time. But ultimately, you're not wasting time because you're putting in work to ultimately get what you want. And you can think about it in a structured way like you could like you would think about anything else. So, you know, download a dating app and you know, can you spend 10 minutes a day swiping and messaging people? Can you set a goal for yourself like I'm going to go on two dates a month? And if you start doing things like that and just think about it like another another goal for yourself like you would think of learning a new hobby or trying to be better at, I don't know, cleaning, you know, just put it in your schedule. And I think you'll find that you can, you don't have to spend all of your time on it. Yeah. I think something on time management too, as well as he, he kind of mentions he has a hard time prioritizing time. And I think a lot of people do. I think life is very challenging and there's probably not enough time in the day to do what everybody feels they should or wants to do. Right. So it is hard. And this is very a coachy recommendation, but you could literally map out your hours in the day and then list your values and make a little spreadsheet of, or pie chart of how much time are you spending in each value? So if work's a value, great. You're spending 10 hours a day in work. Awesome. Probably got that box checked, right? If family's a value, how much time are you spending calling your mom or going to visit your family, friends? How much time are you making for them? Relationship, how much you're making for them? And mo for most people, they probably care a lot more about their family and their friends or their relationship than their work or than being in school. And yet, they spend a lot less time on it. And so I think sometimes when you just map it out like that, you can really see, hmm, okay, is this how I really want to spend my life, right? And if this thing is so important to me, isn't it worth putting a little bit more time into it? So that's one little thought for me. Yeah, who works 10 hours a day? Is, a lot of people, a lot not, of people. Not, even, <laughs> not you and I because we've done this value sheet and now we have more work-life balance but there's been times when I have I mean in school I think I was just felt like it was work all the time and I didn't necessarily deserve to have a break or be happy and then I surprise surprise was stressed and anxious so I think it's really there's a it's really normalized to work all the time and work on the weekends and work at night. And if you're around other people who do that, maybe you're in a company that's really high stress and high work. 
people just say, oh, of course you work 70 hour weeks because I do too, or 100 hour weeks. Or if you're in school and you have to work all the time to try to get good grades so you can get a good job, right? That's what people are doing. And you just, it's one of those things where, okay, well, I'll, I'll make time on the weekends or I'll make time on the holidays or my 10 vacation days a year. But you could live for 50 years like that and then go, oh crap, I'm retired and, you know, I missed out on a lot of things. So not to be all sad about it, but think about it, right? When are you going to make time for this, right? If this is so important to you, you want to get started and have a relationship. When, when will you have more time? You need, it just, it is, it's, it's always where if something's really important to you, it's important to start investing some time into it now. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel schooled on my 10 hours a day comment and I totally so. <laughs> that was what it was designed for. Definitely. Just to make you feel bad. So Sam just outlined like a very coachy response. And I feel like we've, we've tackled like the XYZ, some of the details in here, but I want to zoom out and do a more therapy response. That's a little bit even more like Freudian, like, let's talk about your mom. Um, I know that there's you went like, there. Had I know, to I know. It's like uh, sorry to be cliche, but uh, do you think it might be your parents? <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, so I want to talk about a theory that is the theory I use the most when helping people work through relationship issues, whether I'm working with a couple or an individual, and it's called attachment theory. It was developed. I don't know. I think like the 60s, you can Google all the official details, but it's about <laughs> the relationship that a child has with their primary caregivers and how that relationship then affects your romantic relationships later on. And essentially, it's about a balance between independence and closeness. And when People have secure relationships with their caregivers. It looks like the caregiver is able to let the child be independent and comfort them and soothe them when they need closeness. And so that leads to what's called a secure attachment type. And then later on in relationships, that person is going to be able to be able to be close in a relationship, but also have autonomy know when a relationship isn't working is going to be able to end that relationship and move on. And then there's the two different types of insecure attachment. Those come from when parents or caregivers aren't quite as good at providing um, the emotional needs for a child. And there's two different ways that they manifest. So one is what's called an anxious attachment style. And that's when a parent or caregiver is not giving the child enough independence. Um, they might helicopter parent or they might be really perfectionistic or highly critical and, and tell the child they have to do things in a certain way. Or they might be inconsistently available for the child. So sometimes the child can go to them for comfort and the parent will be responsive, but sometimes the parent won't be responsive or they'll be really distant or critical. And these, this can lead to this anxious attachment style that leaves the child constantly searching for their parent's approval. Like they're working really, really hard to please the parent. And in romantic relationships, that can manifest as 
always searching for a relationship, getting into relationships really quickly, then really trying to people please in the relationship and being really anxious if there's the perceived feeling of abandonment from their partner. The other kind of insecure attachment style is called an avoidant attachment style, and that's an over-reliance on independence and not enough emphasis on closeness. So the parent or caregiver might be really emotionally shut down, um, and it could be something like uh, depression or like a medical thing that they're going through, but they're just not emotionally there for the child, or they are only there for the child when the child is displaying a positive emotion. If the child comes to them with a negative emotion, they'll shut that down really quickly. And so then the child learns my emotional needs aren't going to be met. So I'm going to be independent and I'm going to avoid closeness. And oftentimes with avoidant attachment styles, they will have a harder time getting into relationships growing up or they'll have a harder time committing to relationships or they're in a relationship, but in some way, shape, or form, they're trying to create distance. And they can become highly logical, and they can often feel like they had a really good childhood, like they're really healthy. And so it's hard to realize that maybe something might have been missing in their childhood because they feel like, oh, I'm just really independent. That's a great thing. But they might not realize that it's hard for them to have closeness. And underneath an avoidant attachment style is often a fear of rejection, a fear that if you get too close to someone, you're not going to be enough. So this can, you know, manifest at every stage of like dating, relationships, marriage. But when I read the letter writer's letter, I'm wondering if they might have some avoidant attachment style dynamics. And So the way I just described attachment was essentially in three different buckets with secure, anxious, and avoidant, but it makes more sense to think about it on a spectrum. And there's security in the middle and then avoidant on one side and anxious on the other side. And when people get stressed, they kick out to one side or the other and they act anxious or they act avoidant. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you are quote unquote anxious or are quote-unquote avoidant, because that's a little bit fatalistic, because with awareness and with therapy, you can become more and more secure. But when you get triggered, you might act like one, or you might act like the other. But anyways, it sounds to me like this letter writer is acting a bit avoidant when it comes to relationships. There's this feeling like you're not enough, like you need to be perfect. And so the way that you're going to do that is to avoid. So it might be helpful to, you know, do some research on attachment. There's a lot of books out there and blogs and, you know, lots of therapists who work with attachment styles and think about your parents, like, did they encourage you to be close? Did they make it feel safe for you to come to them when you were feeling bad? Because that's what leads you to realize, okay, I can be vulnerable. I can take this risk. And if I get hurt, it's going to be okay. So you de- if you're having this avoidant attachment style, again, it's not, it's not like a determinant thing. Like, oh, you had a bad childhood, so then you're never going to have a healthy relationship. You can definitely work through that and still have a really healthy relationship. But 
awareness is actually a really helpful thing in helping to resolve an attachment issue. Okay, awesome. That was a really good overview and explanation. And you sound so smart and cool. You're the best. Um, Thanks. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, so let's say the letter writer is listening to this or anybody else is listening to this and thinking, hmm, I might be have some avoidant attachment. What's one step they can take? I mean, awareness is great, but what's one other thing they could do to start to maybe move towards the middle of that spectrum and be a little bit more secure? So I think there are a lot of different steps you could take, but some of them are actually the things we talked about earlier. Like, okay, what's the thing you're afraid of? Try that, right? So in this case, the, you're afraid of starting to date. So try dating. And if you feel some discomfort, either some you know emotions, some body sensations, some thoughts that say, I'm not good enough, I'm going to get rejected, just try to notice those and tell yourself, okay, these thoughts are here, but they might not be true. So do it anyway and give yourself like a huge pat on the back and be like, I'm being vulnerable right now. I'm taking a risk. And that's a good thing. Whether or not I get rejected, me going on a date tonight is a good thing because I'm putting myself out there. Yeah, nice. And I think that kind of comes back to what I was saying in the beginning a little bit of these thoughts are protection mechanisms. And I think something else I've learned about that is that the the more risk you take, so say you're going on your first date, those thoughts are going to become even more prominent in that moment because there's there's the red flashing lights saying, ah, you're doing the scary thing. Ah, warning, 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 right? And those thoughts might pop up with more intensity or more frequency, which can make you then think if you're, if you think, oh, these thoughts are real and I should listen to them, then you're wondering, oh, this was a mistake. I'm not ready. I shouldn't do this. But really, I think another way to think about it is say, okay, you're trying to protect me. Thanks, brain. And I'm going to listen to Sam and Hannah. I'm going on this date right? I'm going to go do the thing I want to do. So, woo. Yeah. And I think, again, that those red flashy lights, right? They're like, I'm uncomfortable. Like, that can actually be a good thing. And try to be in your stretch zone, right? Like, your stretch zone is like, you're not super comfortable, but you're not so uncomfortable that you're having an anxiety attack, right? You're, You're somewhere in the middle where you're doing something that feels hard, but not so hard that you're completely overwhelmed. So maybe going on a date a month would feel like, okay, this is in my stretch zone, but you don't have to do speed dating because that would be a nightmare. Mm, true. Yeah. On, I would never do speed dating. Jesus Christ. <laughs> like when uh, you get rejected by somebody yeah. just just <laughs> met you after five minutes and they're like, actually, I don't like your face and... You suck. And you're like, "Eh, I said I like you. Like, I don't know. Anyways, (laughs) anyone who has the confidence to be dating is truly a legend in my book. (laughs) True. All right. Should we go on to the next letter? Yes, please. Okay. I'm going to read the second letter. I have started a new job during the pandemic. It has been difficult adjusting for a number of reasons. Work is mostly remote which makes it harder to get up to speed on everything and to meet my coworkers. It is hard to get people to know who I am and to ensure that I'm being included in projects and recognized for my efforts. 
I want to do everything that I can to start off on the right foot so I can have long-term success in my new office. And I'm worried that I'm not building a strong enough foundation during these difficult times. It is easy to have miscommunications over email or phone when under normal circumstances, we could have conversations face-to-face. I have tried introducing myself to people over the phone and email and setting up introductory calls, but these feel brief and superficial. I'm also not sure if these will create meaningful relationships. Coworkers have been very understanding and helpful when I reach out for guidance, but at a certain point, I also wanna be more independent with my work. When I'm required to go into the office, I'm uncomfortable with the safety situation. As a result, I would generally prefer avoiding the office, but I also do not want to appear as though I'm not not a dedicated member of the team by requesting the option to work from home. I would really appreciate advice on how to develop meaningful relationships with my my new coworkers and how to find a healthy balance of feeling comfortable, but also proving my dedication to the job. I can, I have a lot of thoughts, but do you have some initial thoughts as well you'd like to throw in there? I would say, give yourself a break. Like, it's a pandemic. It seems like you're having pre-pandemic expectations for your work and for your workplace connection. I think the longer that this goes on, the more we feel like, okay, we need to get back to normal. But we are underestimating the toll that this is taking on us and how hard it is to communicate virtually in an office. And so it sounds like you're doing a good job. I think just give yourself a pat on the back that you're doing a good job. You don't have to overcome all these obstacles. You can just do your best. Yeah, I think that's Excellent advice. And I will definitely say that from people I've talked to and coached, you are certainly not the only one feeling like it is pretty hard to start a new job in a pandemic. A lot of people feel that they're not doing as good of a job as they want to or connecting with people as much as they want to. So you're definitely not alone. In this pandemic, I trained two new people on my team right in the beginning of this And then I also left my job and started a new job. So I have been on both sides of this. So I can, I can definitely relate as well. Um, So I have a, I have a couple thoughts. First of all, safety first, right? If you don't feel comfortable going to the office, which is extremely legitimate right now, then don't go into the office. And it's a little similar to what Hannah was saying about the first letter writer who was saying, you don't want to date the people who will judge you if you don't have money. You don't necessarily want to impress the people who are going to judge you if you don't want to go into work during a global pandemic, right? And unfortunately, some offices are like that, but that is not on you. That is on them. And it probably is not a great place to work long term if that's the kind of vibe that they're giving off. So I'll just say that. So a couple things. I think that when I first read this letter, I was really thinking about the personal relationships of how can you make friends with people and, you know, connect. And then when I read it a second time, I kind of dug more into the idea of showing competence and building credibility. And so I want to start there. I want to start with competence because I think that competence builds trust. 
right? You trust people who do what they say they're going to do and are reliable. And the people on your team have probably had a hole in their team. They're waiting to hire you and they're probably overworked or hoping that someone's going to come in and do a good job. And so if you start to come in and do a good job, then they're probably going to have goodwill towards you, right? They're probably going to be excited that you're there. They're going to be grateful to you. And then that can help build close relationships because they're feeling excited that you're there. And it can definitely go the other way too, where if you're nice to them, you're excited you're there, then you start to work on projects. But I sometimes think that we overlook that people want competent colleagues. So that's where we can start with this. And I thought back to something that I my brother told me right when I was graduating college. So Hannah and I are not the only Stroms. We have an older brother as well, who is very amazing. And when he got into the workforce, he did really well. Like he was a top salesperson on his team and he was getting promoted left and right and all these bonuses. And everyone was just saying, you're the best person ever. And he's not here to defend himself against that unbiased opinion. But anyways, I remember my dad saying, you know, we all were getting dinner and he was bragging about how great Zach was doing. And Zach just said, I'm not doing anything special. I'm just not making any mistakes, which puts me ahead of everybody else. And that really stuck with me because I thought, really? You know, how can that be the case? But I have thought about that in the working world at times. And I think it's, it's sometimes subtle things that I think actually coronavirus has exacerbated because everybody's working a little bit more independently um, when they, if they are remote, that you can kind of tell when somebody cares in a job, right? And it's, it's accumulation of a lot of little things, right? From what time do they start emailing you in the morning and how fast do they respond to emails and are there typos in said emails, right? And do they have to ask the same question three, four, five times, or are they asking a follow-up question on something else that was said, right? Is their work product well-written? Are they taking initiative on new projects? Are they asking, hey, I'm done with work. Is there anything else I can do, right? Are they doing the opposite of that? And I think I would just take a gander that this person, letter writer, is one of those people who does those things and thinks, oh, but everybody does this right? But not everybody does. And it's sometimes good to think back to, have you had that experience with working with somebody, even think about like a group project in college where there was a slacker on the team, right? And they weren't necessarily getting their stuff in on time, right? They're, those people are in the workplace now. And so just by being a person who is doing those basic things, I think it can show competence, even if it doesn't feel like you're doing anything really special. I think that's true. But once again, uh, from the give yourself a break closet. <laughs> um, She's a therapist. Yeah. Um, never my next. <laughs> it's okay if you do make mistakes. Like I've definitely had some slip ups during COVID that 
I feel like could have happened at any time, but I do want to blame on COVID because it's a great <laughs> excuse, which is like, I took a nap through one of my appointments. Like I thought it was at five. It was actually at four. I didn't double check. My client was like, where are you? I like woke up to my 4.30 alarm and I was like, wow, that's very embarrassing. Um, but you know what? It happens. Like, and it's happened to me a couple of times, like a, a somewhat big mistake like that. And, you know, it's okay if you make them. It's a really confusing time. So just, again, I'm sure you're competent. I'm sure you're great. But like if someone's out there being like, but what if I'm not the best? I was a slacker in the group project. Like, it's okay. Yeah, I think that's super true. And I think that, I mean, this person said they have had some miscommunications already. And I know, similar to you, I've definitely made mistakes. Everyone has. And the the new job, I'll give you one to share in the shame. The new job I just started the first student I emailed said their name wrong. It was John. And I said, Josh. And then I went back and was to send a follow-up email. And I was like, no. (laughs) And I just, I just made a mistake. And you know what, you know what happens sometimes when I'm doing something new, I kind of panic and get really stressed. And I just think so much worse and make so many more typos than what I normally do. So that I think I'll blame it on that. Um, but then what you have to do is do a very heartfelt apology. And that's what I did with this person. I was like, oh my gosh, I just realized I called you by the wrong name. I'm so sorry. That's horrible. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I think you kind of have to put your heart on the line there and really show your humanity and your vulnerability and show and try to make it up to them. So that was kind of going to be my next point it, of making mistakes, but just in general as well. I think in COVID, my I think I always like exclamation points and emails, right? And I always like smileys and stuff. And like in my personal text, I use a lot of emojis and stuff like that. But I think when you're remote, it can be harder to get that tone of I'm this nice, friendly person across. And so I think I've just let my exclamation points fly, right? I've just said, I'm going to show I'm friendly as much as possible. So adding a lot of warmth in your greeting and how you're phrasing things and how you're asking for things, which, I mean, that might not be your style or you might not be in a company that allows that. You might be in a really strict, serious organization. So in which case, just throw that out the window. But I think most people like friendly people, right? And I think a lot of people button up for the workspace. And then when, if, and when they see someone who's really friendly, then they become more friendly and then they open up. And then that's how you kind of begin to build a closer relationship. Yeah, I think that's really true. I've definitely put some pressure on myself early on to sound more professional, but then that's not really me and it feels really awkward. So if you are allowed to be a little bit looser, I would encourage you to do that. And also, you know, you mentioned getting to connect with your coworkers and you're not, you don't feel safe going to the office, which is completely fair. And again, echoing Samantha, definitely, definitely don't do it. If you're not comfortable, COVID is raging around us. It's very responsible to stay home, but you could also figure out 
what you do feel comfortable with. Like some people feel comfortable going for a walk with masks or, you know, sitting outside, getting a coffee kind of spaced out. So, you know, you've had these perfunctory or you feel like they're perfunctory chats with your new coworkers, but, you know, do you feel safe maybe being outside? Because then you could be like, hey, let's get a socially distanced coffee or something like that. Or you could try to arrange like some Zoom happy hour for your team. Like, I and I know that not everybody finds those things fun, but if you're looking for a way to connect, is there a way to connect social distance style that would feel safe for you? Yeah. And I think, I think this person is even saying that they started to do that, but they feel kind of brief and superficial. And so if that's the case, I would think about how do you take the conversation from maybe small talk to medium talk, right? How do you get a little bit deeper with people? And so maybe instead of opening with the question of how are you doing or how's your weekend, maybe think of something else. Maybe you could say, what's your favorite podcast or what, what media have you been watching in COVID or I don't know, you know, what's, what's the favorite vacation you ever had? Maybe just have something in the back of your pocket that can hopefully connect with people a little bit quicker, especially if your call is mainly a meet and greet. I think in terms with of projects and getting on projects, if you're in a company where you kind of need to network to get put on projects and people have to know you and pull you in, asking about projects in terms of what was your favorite project you ever worked on? Or what's the one that you struggle with the most and what do you do about it? Or what do you wish you knew when you first started on your project? Things to kind of, A, show interest and curiosity, which most people enjoy talking about themselves, especially if they get to do it in an interesting way. And then potentially you can also connect on it or know what projects they're on. And then two months later, you can say, hey, I saw this project that you're on. That's kind of like the one you talked about. Can I hop on it? One other thing the letter writer talks about is that balance between asking for help and independence. And that's definitely a dynamic that people in new jobs have to strike for sure. Because there's, A, there's literally no way that you can not ask for help in your new job and do a good job, right? You're going to have to ask questions and figure out what's going on and where's that document and who am I supposed to send this to and a million things like that. So I think there the balance comes in and where I've kind of seen it is I think most people you kind of get maybe it's a week or two of where you can just ask unlimited questions, right? Everyone knows you're training, you're brand new, you know, just ask as many questions as you have, right? Then maybe you've been told the things you're supposed to know. And that's kind of where it gets a little bit trickier. And how I think about it is, have you been told this before and you just need to find it somewhere like is it did you take notes and can you just go look through your notes or is it on some company h drive or server that you can go look it up and if so take the time to do that to work independently and not waste anybody's time by asking again and if if it's not there um or you've tried and you can't find it then ask right and I, that's, that's all I want. If I'm training somebody, I just don't want them to ask me a question that I've either said five times or that they could have literally looked up in two seconds. Cause that's when I get a little irritated of eesh. I mean, come on, put in a little effort. Don't put all the work on me. Right. 
but I think if someone's asking it, an interesting question or question we haven't talked about, sure, I have got the time. So that's that's where I would draw the line there. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think when Sam was talking, I just had a shame memory come up of like one of my first real jobs when I was like 24. I definitely just like didn't know what the fuck I was doing and like didn't take accountability and just was like expecting everybody else to like tell me what to do a million times. Um, So, you know, if that's happened to you, just know you're not alone. Um, Good advice. But like, if you haven't always followed it, that's, you know, you are in good company because I think I am good company. So you're with me. (laughs) It's a good place to be for sure. Um, I think kind of one last thought on this is I think there's another part of that competence piece or that independence piece, which is doing a little bit of your work first before you ask for help. So a simple one is that the email chains that last forever about scheduling, right? Hey, I think we should have a meeting. Oh, cool. When can you meet? Oh, when could you meet? Oh, it's these times, you know, and it takes like five emails to get it done, which is the worst. And so in those moments, how can you do most of the work? And for that example, it'd be, I'd love to meet. And either if you have a good calendar system, just I put some time in your calendar. If it doesn't work, feel free to change it. And Zoom links on there, right? Or here are the times that work for me. One, two, three, four, five. Versus saying, when can you meet? And making them have to go through their calendar and look for all that stuff, right? So it's just a little bit of putting in that effort. And I think there's similar things to other projects or questions. So something that's nice is when someone says, I think I know the answer to it and I think it's this, but I want to double check. So just checking, is it this? Versus saying, what is this, right? And providing none of the context or none of your own thoughts on it. Um, That's one. I mean, similar if you're somebody who's drafting reports or papers, you know, drafting it and getting it to as good as you possibly could on your own and then sending to someone, hey, I'd love a second pair of eyes on this or what do you think versus expecting them to fix your typos, you know, or them to know what your draft should be. So I think just once again, showing that competence as much as possible. Um, the last thing I'll say too, is just kind of jumping in with, with friendly things. So I know in my new job, I started right around Halloween and they had a Slack channel and I never really use Slack. So it's definitely feeling a little out of my league trying to engage on Slack. So I got on, but I was trying. That's like our dad was saying that like a year ago. <laughs> he was like, what is Slack? And he, to and he was like, no, I just got used to Slack. <laughs> oh my gosh. Amazing. Um, yeah. So I definitely felt, felt a little boomerish there on Slack, but they had something, it was like virtual Halloween parade. And basically it just meant post old pictures of yourself on Halloween in the Slack. And it was my second day, but I do have some pretty cool old Halloween costumes, no lie. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to jump in. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm Sam. I just started and here's some pictures. And of course, everyone was so nice and friendly. And I think you just have to jump in, right? I think I know people who started new jobs and have thought, oh, did they really mean to invite me because I'm new? Or did, 
Do they really want my opinion? Because I knew. And yes, they hired you and you've started and now you are part of that team. So it's time for you to just jump in, right? And if you say something wrong or that they've already done, oh, well. I think the people who wait a month or two months or three months to really start to contribute, by that time, people might think, oh, they don't really have that much to say, right? And they hired you for a reason, right? They probably really need someone in that role and they wanted your expertise and you probably have expertise. So just show up with it on day one. And if you're not sure what to say, you could always ask a question. And sometimes that question can help lead to a better conversation. Or after a couple of questions, you then can solidify, okay, I think this idea makes sense, you know, but just don't wait either on the social front to join into the holiday party or whatever it is, or on the idea front to just start throwing yourself in there. Yeah. One add on to that is you can always acknowledge what your place is, right? If you're new, you're like, hey, I know I'm new. You guys might have already done this, but here's an idea. Have you guys done this before? And I think that can be a way to acknowledge your newness and also still be in the game. Definitely. Yeah. Not coming in hot with, I know what to do, blah, 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 because that can come across as arrogant. But yeah, just being humble and still putting your thoughts out there. Cool. I think that that kind of wraps up that letter for us. So thank you so much for writing in. Yeah. Thank you for trusting us with your thoughts. It feels like a real honor to have somebody ask us for their opinion and also thank so much for listening i mean seriously this is our first episode and it feels really crazy here alone in our closets that maybe you could you could be out here listening but um really really appreciate it Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. And thank you for sharing your stories. And if you want, if you have a story and you want to write in, please do. You can write in at closelyrelatedpodcast.gmail.com. That is closelyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. And are you sitting there thinking, should I write in? I don't know. Like maybe they haven't too many people write in already. Or maybe my thing isn't cool enough. Yes, you write in now. We want you. Also, it's completely anonymous, uh, but please put in email your pronouns so we know how to refer to you. And also, if you're listening, please subscribe, rate the podcast, or write a review on whatever platform you listen to. It really helps. It does. Um, To learn more about the show, you can check us out at closelyrelatedpodcast.com. Or if you want to learn more about coaching with me, you can go to quartercrisis.com. And if you want to learn about my work as a therapist, you can go to hannahstromcounseling.com. As a reminder, this show does not constitute therapy or coaching. So if you need that, please reach out to a coach or therapist in your area as soon as possible. Yeah. And this podcast is a product of Pascal Strom Consulting, LLC. Thanks again for listening. 